Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Why, it just feels like yesterday that we last rendezvoused. No matter. It's splendid, knowing you've returned. I have one hell of a program slated for this evening. And I'd love to tease you regarding what's coming down the pike. But I would certainly hate to ruin any surprises. So instead, let's just get this thing rolling. Now, just last week, we explored two potential pale crawler or possible albino skunk ape sightings from southwest Florida. Well, in my preparation for this week, I found another story that just might be at home lumped in with those two. So please join me in welcoming our anonymous caller. Also from the state of Florida. I would like to remain anonymous at this point in time, but when I was about 12 here in Florida, I was at a camp, a horse camp to be specific, and we went out in the middle of the woods, and all of us were walking one night. The group leader had a flashlight, but none of the other girls or me had a flashlight. I looked off into one of the fields and saw this humanoid thing on all fours, staring back at me with glowing eyes. I, at that point in time, had never heard of a skinwalker, did not know what it was. But to this day, I'm convinced that's what I saw because it looked at me. And when I went to speak to the group leader to tell him what I had seen out there, it looked directly at the group leader and then back at me as if to challenge me to tell me, go ahead and say something, they can't see me, only you can. And then it got up, and it walked into the woods on two legs. The name of the ranch, I will not give you my name for privacy issues, but the name of the ranch is called Diamond D Ranch. And that is in Jacksonville, Florida. It's very, very situated in the woods. And like I said, I was 12 at the time, so I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a camera or anything to take a picture, and I kind of just stood there and stared at it. And I didn't scream or anything, and I never saw one again after. It's the only one I've ever seen. But it was also during this time period in my life that I was heavily dwelling into Native American lore. I just hadn't come across any stories of their kind yet. And eventually when I did, I realized that that's what I'd seen. And I went to a reservation in North Carolina, and I mentioned it to this old Cherokee woman and she specifically told me not to speak any more on it and to not even say their name. I don't like saying their name, as I have in this recording. And I, because according to her, if you say their name, that's a way that they can get you. But it's one of the many reasons I refuse to go in the woods anymore. Thank you for your time. Thanks, caller. Now, there weren't a lot of descriptive details as to the appearance of the creature in question. But I think we heard enough to assume that the three reports are at least somewhat similar. Now, although we don't know if the entity here was white or gray in color, like it was in the two calls in the previous episode. But the shape of the creature, at least, seemed familiar. And I thought it strange that our caller went immediately to Skinwalker, a supernatural character that, at least to my understanding, is part of the Navajo Nation's lore, and not the Cherokee or any other eastern band, nation, or tribe. But I'm also the first to admit that I don't know a lot about the subject, 
But a few seasons back, I put a call out to our friends at the Navajo Nation in hopes of getting a tighter grasp on the phenomena. And luckily for us, a few folks reached out, including Joe from New Mexico. This is what he had to say about the subject. Hey, Derek, this is Joe. I had called in a couple seasons ago about uh, UFO sightings I had when I was a child up on uh, old U.S. Route 666 on a Navajo reservation. And I was listening to uh, Season 11, Episode 13, when you were talking about skinwalkers again. And uh, he asked if any of us Navajos have uh, any information on it, on some of the skinwalkers. And what I know of them, from what we were taught, is that they're basically witches. That's what my aunts and mom would describe them as. And they would wear a piece of the animal pelt that they would take the form of somewhere on their body, whether it be strapped around their stomach, arm, or what have you. There's different stories of how they would be prepared. Either they would have their forearms and their legs Actually, like your forearm would be bent toward your bicep and then rawhide strapping would be tied around it to keep your arms from overextending and stretching out. And you'd be able to run like, you know, say like if they put a coyote pelt on it, that was the form they were taking. In fact, there's a story uh, when my aunts and my mother were growing up here in Gallup, New Mexico. In fact, that's where I'm driving through now, that when they were little girls... Back in the early 50s, if I remember the time frame right, there was a mother and daughter that always wandered around with a high neck dresses on, black, and the sleeves went all the way down to their wrists, and skirts actually dropped all the way down to their ankles. And a McKinley County Sheriff had come across a large dog running, and he actually, according to what was said, and there's supposed to be a story on this, that uh, he shot and killed this huge dog. And when he got it in to the corner here in Gallup, and when they had gone to check the body the next morning to take measurements of how large this dog was, it turned out it was actually the daughter that had been killed and had transformed overnight after she had died, been placed in the in the morgue, and they said that the rawhide lacings where her arms and legs had been tied up, and her knees and her elbows had been heavily calloused from running on it, and after that, mom told us that uh, the mother had been gone for a while, and she showed back up just by herself, but there's also other stories of that when they're stand up on their hind legs whether they're an animal form of running they haven't been bound to run like an animal i've had cousins see them middle of the night one of my aunts lived in Wind rock one of my cousins was uh, being tormented supposedly by I, I don't know how true that was but by some and we it was in the summer because i remember we didn't have any school and when we got to my aunt's house they had to go to where my cousin lived. My my dad, my mom, and my aunt, they left us there with a couple of my cousins at my aunt's house. And right about midnight, underneath the light pole, there was a huge dog that was just sitting there panting like he had been running. And it looked like it should have been like, I don't know, just a, a mutt. But it was just sitting up, looked like a human squat on its rear end. And its pants touching the whoop front balls up to the ground and I, yeah it's it's taboo for us to kind of talk about it but we always like to do it because you know it always got that vibe of being scared amongst those cousins i don't like driving through this area at night i never just i haven't uh i've seen stuff out here that i can't explain that really really spooks me and i'm just really nervous and freaked out about it so thanks keep up the good work Thank you, Joe, for sharing that info with us. There are certainly some tropes that are repeated with this legend. The binding of the limbs. That reminds me of other instances where body modification is directly tied to the paranormal or the supernatural. 
For example, there was a particular cult in the country of Chile that practiced a menagerie of menacing behavior, including, but not limited to, cannibalism, infanticide, and forced body modification. Rituals were performed in a cave below the city, where they would create a creature known as the Imbuche. Here is tonight's Beyond guest host, David Flora, in a clip from when he covered the Imbuche in his popular Miss Cryptid segment. A quick trigger warning, the body modification that's about to be discussed was performed on children, so if you'd rather not hear those details, you should skip ahead about a minute and a half or so. The Imbunche, or sometimes Invunche, was a grotesque human of the warlock's design, made to guard the entrance of the secret cave where the sect performed their nefarious rituals. British fop and travel writer Bruce Chatwin described the process of how they made Imbunches from stories he learned in the 1970s, saying, When the sect needs a new Imbunche, the council of the cave orders a member to steal a boy child from six months to a year old. The deformer, a permanent resident of the cave, starts work at once. He disjoints the arms and legs and the hands and feet, then begins the delicate task of altering the position of the head. Day after day, and for hours at a stretch, he twists the head with a tourniquet until it has rotated through an angle of 180 degrees, that is, until the child can look straight down the line of its own vertebrae. There remains one last operation, for which another specialist is needed. At full moon, the child is laid on a workbench, lashed down with its head covered in a bag. The specialist cuts a deep incision under the right shoulder blade. Into the hole, he inserts the right arm and sews up the wound with thread taken from the neck of a ewe. When it is healed, the envunche is complete. That is truly grotesque. And of course, the mention of a piece of animal hide that holds power is reminiscent of werewolf legends. Claims that by strapping a so-called wolf strap, or a long strip of wolf's hide on oneself, could then cause a transformation into the creature we all know as the werewolf. Those thoughts and belief stem from the Germanic regions of Europe, and the story of Peter Stomp from that region certainly comes to mind. The town of Bedburg had been plagued with horrors, and it was believed that a wolf was the cause. One night in 1589, a hunting party actually cornered the wolf, and when the men of the hunt caught up with the hounds, they found Stump. According to legend, the wolf was missing its left paw, and Stump was missing his left hand. At his trial, he was stretched on a rack and subjected to torture. He confessed that the devil had given him a magic belt that enabled him to turn into a wolf. He said that over 25 years, he killed and ate goats, sheep, men, women, and children, one of which was his own son, which he ate his brain. Now that one courtesy of the graveyard shift over on YouTube. And it's certainly strange that these details seem to persist with each of these comparable monsters. But you know, I can't help but think that something strange, seen or witnessed in the state of Florida or any other eastern state in the U.S., would be more likely something else other than a traveling skinwalker. Well, that's just my opinion. And it's also my opinion that what her caller described seems more akin to another Cherokee legend, one that just might tie in to last week's stories as well. Across the southern Appalachian Mountains from Georgia up through North Carolina, hundreds of unusual stone structures have been discovered. Some date back hundreds of years, some date back thousands. Archaeologists aren't sure who created these monuments, but the Cherokee people claim they know exactly who built them. The Cherokees say the structures were built by the Moonite people, a race of fair-skinned, light-haired, bearded humans. Their large blue eyes were so sensitive to sun that they lived in caves and came out only at night, which is why they're called Moonide. Now that clip was courtesy of The Y Files. And if your interest is piqued, The full video is 15 minutes long and explores how this mysterious race could come to live beneath the grounds of the Cherokee Nation. 
and I've spoken about them so often that I can't recall where this was first suggested. But I often wondered that if the Moon-Eyed people were and still are real, still somehow carving out a living in a subterranean world, perhaps that is what folks like our caller this evening and last week's callers are seeing. Perhaps these are the pale crawlers. Then again, a theory like that would require both of these legends to be true. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. But the bottom line here is this. It certainly seems like there is something sinister sneaking around the Sunshine State. Some thing that may only come out at night, when the moon is pale and the rest of the world slumber in their beds. Thank you, caller, for calling in and for making Florida just a little bit weirder. Now this next entry will likely change people watching for you forever. Now I'll explain what I mean after this spooky little number from Sarah in New York. Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm a first-time listener. I'm really enjoying the show so far. I thought I'd call in with my own spooky story. This takes place in Brooklyn, New York, a few years ago. New York obviously is known for being a very haunted place, but I think what's remarkable is, is how completely normal the setting was. This was the Eastern Parkway 23 subway station. On a nice sunny day, I was helping a lady carry a stroller down the stairs, as you do. When this woman appeared at the top of the stairs, and she seemed a little confused. I don't know, something felt kind of off about her. I'm walking backwards down the stairs with the stroller, looking up at her. She had like an old floppy hat on, the kind you'd see in the 1970s. She looked very kind of 1970s, but you know, in Brooklyn, that also could be very hipster. Um, except it was like very 1970s, like long skirt, kind of nice thick belt with a flowy blouse, the big old glasses, the floppy hat. I thought she looked very cool, but very off. And she kind of shouted down and she said, how much are tokens? Which is odd because New York City subways haven't used tokens in a really long time. Most like young people may not even know about the token system. She looked young, maybe in her 20s. And me and the lady at the stroller were kind of paused at the bottom of the stairs. And I, I looked up and I was like, the subway doesn't take tokens anymore. It, it hasn't for a long time. And the lady was like, you have to use a card. It's a card, you know, the Metro card. And the woman was like, oh, okay. And she kind of walked away. Um, and I, I felt bad, like maybe we hadn't helped her enough. So I, uh, I went running back up the stairs to catch her. These New Yorkers love to be helpful when it comes to the subway. And she was completely gone. So the, the thing about the station is it's kind of in a medium in the middle of the street. So there's traffic flowing on both sides of the subway station. It's kind of hard to get to sometimes. You have to cross all this traffic to get to it. So I can't imagine where this woman had gone. She was just completely gone. There's traffic flowing on both sides. There's nothing to hide behind. I mean, she would have had to have like, booked it across traffic um, or like suddenly jumped into a, a cab. I have a hard time. Cabs aren't going to stop there. So I don't know. She just kind of disappeared and I, I ran back down those stairs and just had a look on my face because the lady with the stroller was like, I don't want to know. <laughs> but I think we just, we knew that something had been really off about her. It was such a strange question. I've, I've lived in New York most of my life. No one's ever asked me about whether tokens are needed or how much they cost. I, even for tourists, I think it's pretty well known that that's not a thing anymore. So I always wondered about that. I think most people think about the really famous ghosts of New York City, but this is just a normal day and a lady with a big 70s hat who just suddenly disappeared. Thank you, Sarah. Listen, if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. Literally. The next time you find yourself in a crowd of people, take a look around, study each face, examine every piece of wardrobe. Because if Sarah's story tells us anything, the ghosts of the past 
and even the recent past, could be right there in front of us. Thank you again, Sarah, for sharing that story. So if you want to contribute your true paranormal story for consideration, please call our toll-free hotline, toll-free in the U.S. at least, at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to me at monstersamonguspodcast at gmail.com. Now then, up next we explore the skies over the state of California with this submission from Judy. Hi Derek, this is Judy from Long Beach, California. So my story, what actually happened this year, 2021, on July 4th, we were down at the St. Mary's parking structure. We were there, we arrived there maybe like around 8.45, getting ready just to see fireworks downtown like they usually well they started back up again and we were at the very top level of the parking structure so we can clearly see all around us and you know got a great view of the fireworks and everything going on around us after the fireworks i'm going to say around 9:40, we were ready to go home we were almost all in the car my boyfriend starts telling me he's like hey look look and I thought he was talking about another firework. A bit annoyed, and I was like, I'm here to go home, you know, like, let's just go. I was getting a little bit chilly. And he's like, look, look, he kept insisting I looked. So I got out of the car. And to the west side of Long Beach, you can say, there were four lights going up. I want to say maybe from, like, the San Pedro area going up like at a 45 degree angle and there were reddish orange lights all in a line like it seemed like there was just spaced out equally going up very very slowly and once they got a little further up I can't really say how high they were but they were pretty high they started going east I guess or south I'm not sure but they were going towards the Queen Mary like over that area of Long Beach. And once it felt like they were right in front of us, the lights started, I guess, changing a bit to like a white color. And it felt like they were going out towards the ocean, not up or sideways or anything. It felt like they were going out. They were going further out and they just disappeared. There was no noise. I don't think there were fireworks because we observed them for about five minutes or maybe longer. We were just kind of in awe, like, what are we watching? And none of us had the idea to record this. I took two pictures, which I'll email to you, but nobody recorded this. And we just couldn't believe what we were watching. Yeah, if anybody saw that on July 4th after 930, 940, downtown Long Beach, please let me know. Just want to know if this is what I think I saw, which I'm thinking were UFOs. But yeah, thank you. Love your podcast. Thank you, Judy. Now, I've spent some time in Long Beach, and I've always enjoyed myself down there. There's the beach, the aquarium, and of course, the infamous Queen Mary. No UFOs, though. At least not that I can recall. But truth be told... There's always something strange over the skies of Southern California. You just gotta look up. And how about it, folks? Did anyone else see what Judy saw that night? If so, give us a ring. Let's find out what's really going on in the LBC. Oh, and Judy, I was unable to find the photographs you emailed in. So if you don't mind, send them back in and I'll keep an eye out for them. Now before we jump into this next one, just a quick reminder that you can catch me and David Flora on tonight's Beyond episode over at Patreon. We chat about several different brand new stories in the back half of this two-parter. So to listen, just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash monsters among us podcast and join the $5 level. You will get instant access to the entire 55 plus episode back catalog 
and access to all the new Beyond segments. And let me tell you, the content hours are really starting to add up with this new format. Oh, and I should mention, you get all that ad-free. So again, that's patreon.com forward slash Monsters Among Us podcast. And we truly thank you for your support. Now let's get back into the action with this action-packed entry from an anonymous caller in the state of Washington. Yeah, hey Derek. So, I'm from Washington. I live in this little area. There's a town called East Wenatchee. And it's pretty big to me because I grew up on top of a mountain that's right nearby. And so I'm 20 miles away from this, from East Wenatchee and lived up on a, on a farm up on the top of this mountain. And on the other side of the mountain, about 10 miles or so from where I live, there's a, uh, a tiny little, like, one-road town called Waterville. One night, this was in my junior year of high school, so it was 2016, and it was during the summertime. I couldn't tell you exactly when. It was probably June, July-ish, I'd, I'd want to say. I was hanging out with a friend of mine that was from the smaller town, Waterville. We were hanging out with some people over in the larger town, and I was taking her home that night, and it was probably 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning. Not a lot of traffic goes up and down that mountain at 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning. I mean, it's a, don't get me wrong, it's a fairly populated place for being as far out as it is, but there's not a lot of action that goes on, you know. So I'm driving this gal home. We're having a good time. We're laughing and joking, and there's a part of the road that's called the S-curve. That's what me and my family call it. I mean, it's fairly self-explanatory. You curve one way, you curve the other, then you curve back, and it climbs up, and uh, as you round the last corner, it goes into a straight stretch for about four miles or so. So as I'm coming around this last corner, I start speeding up, and uh, I was looking at my friend saying something, and I looked back to the road, and there was a person in the middle of the road, in the middle of my lane, and probably only 10 or 15 feet in front of my car. It was close enough that I could only see from, like, his hip up. I could not see his legs. I could not see his feet. And so I had no time to slow down or try to stop. So I just immediately yanked the wheel to the left, and then I yanked it back to the right and slammed on my brakes, came to a stop, and pulled into the ditch on the side of the road. I start immediately laying on my horn because, like, what's this dude's problem, you know? Well, when... I was right there about to hit him. He never turned and looked. He never, like like a normal person would. I mean, it's the middle of the night. I have my brights on. This dude's walking across the road. Any other person would turn and look at the car that's speeding towards you, you know? I very vividly remember being, when I was that close to him, when I saw him, he never turned and looked at me. So I swerved around him. I'm in the ditch, and I'm laying on the horn, I'm looking at him in the rearview mirror, and he's not turning and looking at me at all. As he walked across the road, he had his eyes fixed straight forward, slightly down. And he had walked all the way over into the ditch next to the road and was standing there staring just straight forward, slightly down. He wasn't moving. I didn't really get a good look at him because, I mean, I, I got... A decent look when I was right there in front of him, but that was the only real good look I got because the rest of it, he was in my brake lights. I want to say that he was wearing, like, a bright, like, yellow or orangish shirt, and then he had a hat on, I want to say, and I couldn't tell you what shoes or pants because I couldn't see him. And I, I sat there and laid on the horn. Like I said, he never turned and looked. He never responded to me at all. And, you know, I, I played with the idea that it could have been somebody uh, who was, on drugs or something or whatever, but he was in the middle of the road on this straightway. There's only two side roads within two miles of that location. There was no cars parked anywhere. And like I said, it's probably about a mile and a half in either direction to the next house. And there should be, I mean, we're, we're far enough out. There's no vagrants, nothing like that. So I have no idea why this guy would be walking across the road in the middle of the night, probably midnight to 1 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of nowhere, with no car around, nothing. And when I was watching the rear mirror and I was honking on my horn, he still never 
turned and looked at me. He didn't do anything. He was standing in the ditch, you know, a good 50 feet behind me, just staring kind of straight forward, kind of down. And that's the same way that he was looking when I when I looked up at my windshield and saw him. He was just looking straight forward, never turned anything. And, you know, like I played with the idea that it could have been somebody up there either, you know, using a substance and was out of their mind or even the possibility of somebody purposely walking across the road to, you know, try to commit suicide or something. But like I said, it's, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning, nobody's around, and there's no car around. And that's the real kicker. Like, there's nothing, there's no car around. And I know there's only two roads within two miles of that location. And for him just to be standing in the ditch, just staring, doing nothing, not responding to the fact that he almost just got killed. I don't know. You know, I tried to explain it away, and... Yeah, so I've got a few other stories. I'll call back a couple other times. Uh, my listening situation is a little bit different. I listened to the beginning of your podcast for a while, and then I went back and started at the beginning. So I'm not sure when I'll hear this or if I will hear it, but uh, I'm slowly making my way up. I think I'm in, like, season four right now. And I just listened to an episode about a couple people up here in Washington who had dealt with a similar kind of situation. So, yeah, thanks for the awesome podcast. And uh, I'll be calling and talking to you again soon. Thank you, caller. Even if this story is not paranormal in nature, it's still terrifying. And it's a prime example of how life is extremely fragile, and it can end at any moment. Unless, of course, this poor soul met his maker prior, and the image our caller saw was a mere projection from the past. Anything's possible. Now this probably won't surprise any of you, but recently I had a somewhat similar experience. So a couple of weeks ago, Sarah and I packed up and headed to Anza Borrego Desert State Park to do some camping, some research, and to pick up a couple additional shots. But it was simply too damn hot, and we ended up packing up and leaving early the second evening. Tails between our legs headed back to the cooler temperatures of our mountain home. Well, the route back took us along State Route 22, or better known as the Borrego Salton Seaway. It's a desolate stretch of route, ravaged by the extreme temperatures and the nearby San Andreas Fault Line. It's 19 miles of darkened, crumbling highway. And as we slowly careened on the warped and wavy asphalt, a blanket of stars above trailer in tow. I began to see a figure appear in the distant headlights. Now if you know how desolate this stretch is, you'd know how weird it is to see a human form walking in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night. Well as we approached, we were shocked to see a man in disheveled clothing, all mostly black from my recollection, walking along the road in bare feet. Mind you, we were at least eight miles from the nearest anything. I dare not call out a town. Now, he didn't wave. He didn't signal in any way. He was just walking. And I thought about stopping for a moment. But that's not an easy task while towing a camper at night on a long, windy road. So we kept going. We were far from the only vehicles on the road that evening, so I felt confident that we were not his last hope. But the appearance, like our caller's experience, there was just something off about it. In my case, I believe drugs may have been involved. But in the case of our caller, perhaps we'll never know. But we do thank you, caller, for taking the time to share that spooky entry. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Are you experiencing a lack in motivation? Are you feeling helpless, trapped, detached, fatigued, or even worse? These are symptoms of burnout, and you could be suffering and not even know about it. Now, we normally associate burnout with our jobs, our work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our everyday roles in life can lead us to feeling burned out. 
Sometimes I myself have a hard time taking a break, whether it's from work or projects around the cabin. But I found that my production and creativity increase after I started forcing myself to take breaks. So maybe you'll benefit as well. BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. Personally, therapy has given me the tools I need to deal with my stress and anxiety in a healthier way so I can be the best version of myself. Now, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Now, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Monsters Among Us listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash Monsters Among Us. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Monsters Among Us for 10% off your first month. As always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening and back to the stuff that keeps you up at night. Who's ready for another mysterious flying object? Please welcome our anonymous caller from the state of Connecticut to the program. Hey, Derek. Just calling again. I gave you a call, I don't know, maybe about a year ago about an experience I had with uh, an entity or something mimicking my name, calling my name. I've been listening to your podcast for the last year, and it's uh, it's really grown. It's been great. Uh, I love it. Uh, keep up the good work. But uh, I figured I'd call you now to talk to you about a UFO encounter that I had. The reason why I remember it is because this past Labor Day, I was reminded of the famous UFO encounter in the Berkshire Mountains in Sheffield and Great Barrington. That was on Labor Day. I forgot the year, but I had a similar experience of a similar UFO when I was about 14. I think it was 2014. It wasn't far from Great Barrington. It was in Watertown, Connecticut. That's where I grew up. And it was a similar experience where I was out in the yard of the house that I was living in at the time and where I lived was next to a lake and it was kind of up high so you could see the lake and the sky would usually always be pretty clear and pretty bright. Uh, I was out there with a friend and we were just playing around just talking. Like I said I was probably about 14. I was about 2013 I believe and he just said look look at that and we look up and we saw a triangle shaped craft that almost looked like it was trying to mimic the sky but you could still see it didn't make any noise and it was very close to the ground and it kind of seemed like it was looking at us and as we were mesmerized just looking at it kind of just floated away and then it did the classic ufo thing that you would think they do where they shoot shoot away like a shooting star you know at the time i was i didn't believe what i was seeing i figured i just saw something I've, even though I was with a friend, he saw the same thing. I just, I couldn't believe what I saw, so I just kind of chalked it up. And then I think about it was about a month later, there was a parent UFO that crashed into Bantam Lake. I think it was about a couple months later. I, I have to do the research on that, but I remember thinking like, wow, that's weird. Like a oh, parent UFO in uh, Bantam Lake. And I remember they closed off the road and it was a kind of a weird time where it, it was like a joke that it was UFO, but like no one knew. And it's kind of one of those things where like you heard about it and then it kind of just lost traction and it didn't hear about it. And, you know, it was just gone, but it kind of sparked my memory. And I decided to go on the internet and I realized that that night that I saw that UFO, multiple people actually saw it too. It was actually put in an account on certain websites of the same night in Watertown. And actually we reached out to a couple friends and they said they saw something similar that night. You know, to this day, I, I still don't believe what I saw. It, you know, the memory is 15 years old. So even though I have all these accounts of other people seeing it, it just was so different and so out of this world. I don't. I just don't believe what I saw. I kind of forgot about it until, you know, like I said recently, when I was reminded of the Berkshire UFO encounters that was on uh, Labor Day of uh, throughout what year. But yeah, you know, I just figured I'd give you guys a call. I hope you guys can use this. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, I hope you have a good day. See you later. 
Thanks, caller. Our caller here did something that's not all that easy to do. He stumped me. Somehow, I had never heard of the Bantam Lake UFO crash until it was mentioned here in this call. So naturally, I did some digging around, and I was lucky enough to stumble upon the initial news report from their local TV station, WTNH, ABC News 8, out of New Haven, Connecticut. It appeared from out of nowhere, from the sky, crashing down to Earth, and as soon as it was here, it disappeared. Was it real, or was it just science fiction? It wasn't exactly a close encounter, but the skies over northwestern Connecticut rained down a mystery. Wow! That may now lie at the bottom of Bantam Lake. What have you noticed? It's raining. <laughs> what will history tell us as to what exactly happened outside the tame town of Morris in the early morning of April 10th, 2012? I don't think we're, we're not alone out here. 2 a.m., a call to state police. An object. Check that. A green glowing object the size of a whale. The size of a whale? The size of a whale crashes into the lake. Morris is locked in this monster. And have you seen it? Not yet. A state trooper even reported seeing something. Yet local fire and rescue, who spent hours looking, found nothing. And no odd reports of something following the nothing. Of course, it is possible, I guess. And again, anything's possible. The belief among experts, a meteor. The sky is falling. At least it picked a good place to land. It's just another day, I guess. And while the object may be gone, the one thing that, well, keeps coming back is the insatiable curiosity of people who live around here who want to know, will anyone look for this thing in the water, and will anyone ever find it? On the scene in Litchfield, I'm Jamie Muro, News 8. Now, I'm not saying I've heard it all, but I consume info on the subject so often that I find there's little I haven't at least heard mention of before. So thank you, caller, for expanding my perspective. Oh, and I believe that object is still down there, if you know a guy with a submarine. Now, a quick reminder that you can access a bevy of items over at our merchandise store. Hats, t-shirts, tanks, posters, koozies, pins, patches, you name it, and it's probably in there. Just visit monstersamonguspodcast.com forward slash shop. Each of the designs in our shop were commissioned directly from the coolest paranormal-themed artist out there today. So get yours while they're still available. Again, that's monstersamonguspodcast.com forward slash shop. Now this next submission is packed with paranormal phenomena. Abby from Indiana. Welcome to the program. Hi, my name is Abby. I'm from a small town in Indiana. I actually just found your show and... I'm pretty interested. It's probably one of the best ones I've found so far, so I wanted to call in and share one of my many stories. There was a house that my family had moved into when I was about 15, and we had moved around a lot, so it was just another house. But my parents wanted to put me in the very back bedroom on the lower, like the main floor, and instantly I knew, like, I cannot be in this room. It turned my stomach. I had chills. I could not be in that room. So right outside of that bedroom was the downstairs bathroom. And it was this long, narrow, kind of like a like an L-shape kind of, but it was really narrow. And there was no bathtub. It was just a shower that was tucked into the wall. Like the wall had been built around the shower. Well, I moved into a different bedroom downstairs, and I had some experiences down there. So then I was like, no, I'm moving upstairs with you guys. So I got in my upstairs bedroom, and oh my goodness, I feel like I could leave you four or five voicemails of everything that happened in this house. But this particular instance, it was like the cherry on top. Finally, someone else had experienced something in this house. I was in the downstairs bathroom getting ready for school one morning. It was probably 5.30, 6 a.m. It was pitch black outside. Like, it was winter. It was cold. It was dark. So there was no way that there was any wind coming in. Like, I didn't have a window open or nothing. So I kept looking in the mirror at the reflection of the shower. And I kept feeling like there was something in the shower. And I had a towel kind of hanging over the door. And it was a glass, like a frosted glass door that just 
opened up. So I had a towel hanging over it, and I kept looking at it, like straightening my hair or curling my hair. I don't remember, whatever I was doing. I was doing my hair. And all of a sudden, the corner of the towel inside the shower picked up, like it looked like somebody just grabbed the corner and picked it up and then dropped it. That spooked me to no end. I don't even think I finished my hair that day. I think I just got out of the bathroom and I waited upstairs for my sister to wake up and we went to school. So then following that, I kept telling everybody about this and they're like, yeah, whatever, maybe it was a draft. There was no draft. There was no way there was a draft coming in. There was no window open, nothing. So I hear this noise. I woke up in the middle of the night upstairs and the way that the floor was set up, like we had a curved staircase that went up it was basically just a hallway upstairs that led to all the bedrooms and the bathrooms. So it's open in the center. You could see down into the foyer. So I woke up. I'm like, man, I'm just going to go pee and I'm going to go back to bed. So I walked around the hallway, went into my sister's bathroom, and I was just groggy, half asleep, sitting there trying to pee. And I hear this buzzing sound. I'm like, man, what, what is that? Like, it kind of sounded like, like the radio towers or like electrical towers are buzzing from a high frequency. That's kind of what it sounded like. And we live near an air force base. So I was like, well, maybe they're doing something. I don't know. And then it got more distinct and I realized it sounded like insects, like locusts or wasps, just some big insect with big wings that they just, heebie-jeebies. So I'm sitting there and I'm listening and I pinpoint where it's coming from, and it's down that back hallway in that bedroom. And I'm hearing it come closer to me. So I hear it traveling down the hallway, and it went through the kitchen, through the dining room, turned into the foyer, and at that point, I am like, nope. I put my feet up on the door. I'm shoving towels down underneath the crack of the door. Like, there, I don't know what this is, but it is not coming in here. I don't like bugs. So I was like, assuming it was just bugs at the time. I'm like, no, it's not coming in here. And I hear it come through the foyer, go up the curved staircase very slowly, might I add, around the hallway, and was now right in front of the bathroom door. And I am sitting there with my back against the toilet and my feet against the door, like pushing it, keeping it closed with all my might. And I was overcome with this bone-chilling dread, like, I knew it wasn't just bugs and I was going through all of my all of my brain trying to figure out like what have I read up to this point about spiritual issues with insects and obviously everything kept coming back to very evil possibly demonic I'm not sure if that's what filled me with dread more or if it was feeling whatever this was outside of the door but it was terrifying I kept whispering go away you're not welcome here. Go away. You're not welcome here. Go away. You're not welcome here. And it finally retreated and it very slowly went back down or around the hallway, down the stairs, through the foyer and down the hallway back to that back bedroom the exact same way that it came. And at that point, I sat there. It felt like an hour. I just sat there waiting to hear if it was going to come back or not. And I finally called my stepdad, woke him up and made him escort me around the hallway back to my own bedroom. And which my bedroom was no safer. It was stuff happened there all the time too, but I don't know. For some reason it just felt safer having him walk me. And I didn't tell anybody about this because I figured it would just be another thing that they make fun of me for or they tell me I was just dreaming it or you would just sleepwalk in or whatever. So I just kept my mouth shut. And not even a week later, I'm sitting in the living room talking to my parents we're just watching TV, whatever. And my sister comes down and she's like, guys, I remember something that happened last night and it really scared me. And I thought I was dreaming, but the more I think about it, it actually happened. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like intrigued because nobody ever had experiences, like maybe one or two here and there, but they were never major. So I'm listening to her tell me this exact same story, like two AT, the exact same story of what happened to me happened to her at the same time in the middle of the night and she said I waited and waited and waited to hear if it was going to come back and it didn't so I bolted to my room and I locked the door and I hid under my blankets for the rest of the night and eventually she fell back asleep but yeah that was that was one of the the very first extra spooky things that happened in that house 
And from then on, I had friends that had claimed to have spiritual abilities come in and tell me that I had a demon following me around or I had a very evil entity following me around. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to feed into whatever it is. I just kind of blew it off. But that's my story. And I'm sure I'll be calling in with many, many, many more. I'm actually in the process of writing a book about all of my experiences. So I'm I'm excited to call in and share some of them with you. Um, I love your show. And thank you for, for setting up this platform. Bye. Thank you, Abby. It's pretty incredible. Especially the buzzing entity. I'm not sure I've ever heard of that detail before. And a validation from your sister certainly makes it spooky stuff. Now this call reminded me of an idea that I had a while back. An idea for a website. For example, let's say you lived in a place a while back that you felt was haunted. So, you fill out a form, submit the location to the site. Then, others that may be about to buy that house can look on this website to see if the address pops up, and if so, what activity was reported. Now, like most of my brilliant ideas, it'll never get past the what-if stage. But still, I think it's a good idea. Anyway, good luck with the book, Abby, and thank you again for sending in the account. And that brings us to our final entry of the evening. And for this one, we venture to the state of Michigan. Emily, go ahead with your story. Hi, my name's Emily. I'm from the Midwest, so I have a Midwest spooky story, specifically from Michigan, uh, near the Michigan-Ohio border. The first one happened probably about 10 years ago. I was at my best friend's house and we were stargazing, laying out on her deck. You know, we had blankets out, and we were laying out there talking, looking at the stars, you know. We like to try and spot constellations and whatnot. It was a fall night, clear, crystal clear. You could see all the stars. She lives in the middle of cornfields, so there's not a lot of light pollution, you know. There's one house every mile, so it was perfect night for stargazing. And while we're looking up at the sky, we start to see these balls of light. And there's three of them, and one explodes and then kind of zigzags over to another, and the other explodes, and then it zigzags to the third and explodes. And uh, I've heard the term ball lightning before. What we saw did not fit any footage that I've seen, any descriptions that I've seen. It was sort of a white, yellow flashing light, and they just kind of zapped around. Uh, and no noise, there was no pop, no crack, uh, it wasn't near any electrical line. To this day, we still talk about it and have no idea what it was. Ball lightning is the only thing we've ever heard someone say that it was, other than maybe a UFO, which I can't say for certain what that was, you know. But we both saw it. We jumped and we, like, grabbed onto each other. We kept saying, what is that? What is that? You know, like, trying to debate if we should run inside or stay out to keep looking. And we just stayed there, like, frozen, staring up at the sky, like, trying to process what we just saw. And I've never seen anything like it to this day. You know, I've seen comets, I've seen shooting stars and all that, you know, satellites. And we've stargazed enough times to know what's sort of a normal occurrence. And this certainly wasn't anything like we'd ever seen before. (laughs) And we'd seen some strange things floating around by her house before, just because you can see better than... I live in town, so, you know, there's a little more light pollution. I can't see the stars as well. So we tend to notice things more often when we're out at her house. And uh, this is still the most striking, bright flashes. They were bright, but they were so, like, it was very obviously a circle. When I look at lights, you see those little lines kind of coming off of, like, a light bulb or a headlight or something. It was nothing like that. It was like a clear circle. It had defined edges. (laughs) It was just very bright. Yeah, we have no explanation for that one. Now, that's certainly not the first time we've received a report of oddly moving, glowing orbs in the sky. I bet I have dozens of those entries in my library, in fact. Now, despite all that anecdotal evidence, we find ourselves no closer to solving that mystery. And as much as I'd like to contribute to a solution here tonight, I'm afraid I have to move on. Because Emily's call continues, 
and what she says next is a firm grasp on my attention. The second story I have sort of ties into this one because it's in the same area within three miles distance. Uh, I was probably 13 or 14, driving home from Ohio with my mom. It was dark, probably around 9 or 10 p.m. We were taking the same route that we always do through these backcountry roads not far from where my childhood best friend lived. Uh, we were probably about three miles from her house, and we were driving past this house at an intersection. It's right past the stop sign. We drive past this house almost every night, and this time we noticed there was an animal. I saw the eyes reflecting in our high beams, and I, you know, didn't think anything of it because it's extremely commonplace to see coyotes and deer in this area at all times of the day. So I just said, oh, hey, watch out for that deer, you know, because my mom's driving, it's dark, we don't want it to run out in front of the car, you know. But the closer we get to it, we realize it's standing on two legs. Uh, and even she started to say, you know, that's that's not on four legs, right? That's, that's standing on two legs like a human, right? And I was like, yeah. And we get closer and closer and we realize the head is not it's not of a deer, but much more of like a, a wolf or a dog, you know, pointed ears, elongated snout that had the glowing eyes. We didn't get a really good look at it, but she saw enough that she confirmed like, yeah, that looks like a dog. And she, she slams on the brakes and starts to try to angle the car to get uh, more light on the creature. And I'm yelling at her. I'm telling her, no, get, get out of here. Get out of here. I've, got, I've seen enough, you know, horror movies to know that we shouldn't stick around to check this out and it kind of just slinks off on two legs moving a lot quicker than it seems like it should based on its movement but it, it was gone before we were able to get a closer look and the whole way back I was trying to convince her not to turn around and go looking for it because she wanted she wanted to hunt it down she wanted to get a picture or something and I was terrified in the moment. I, I wanted nothing to do with it. I'm kind of kicking myself for that now because it would have been nice if we, you know, got a little more solid proof. But I, I didn't want to take the chance. So that's, uh, you know, we would always call it the werewolf. We saw it was a werewolf on our way home. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, fan of the show. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Emily, for that gripping account. I absolutely adore a good dogman story, especially when it comes from one of my old stomping grounds. I spent half a decade or so in Bowling Green, and I worked in downtown Toledo for a few years as a screen printer, so I know that area well. And as we've touched on in past episodes, folks around those parts are well aware of the legends. We've spoke of the infamous Michigan Dogman. We've played the song by Steve Cook. In 57, a man of the claw found claw marks on an old church door. The newspaper said they'd been made by a dog. He'd have had to stood seven foot four. In 67, a van load of hippies told a park ranger named Quinlan... They'd been awakened in the night by a scratch at the window. There was a dogman looking in and grinning. And of course, we've discussed a plethora of sightings in the Buckeye State as well, including a famous case from the 1970s that transpired near the Ohio-Michigan border. I speak of the Werewolf of Defiance. Werewolf of Defiance is a urban legend that led to a full-on police investigation. Defiance, Ohio is a small town. It's about 33 miles south of Toledo, and the year is 1972. Two railroad workers, Ted Davis and Tom Jones. Davis is doing his job and looks over and sees a huge, hairy pair of feet. Looks up further and sees what he describes as a huge hairy creature with fangs and clothing and holding a huge two by four, which he then uses to hit Davis over the head. The next night, his partner sees the same thing. He sees a huge hairy creature lurking in the bushes somewhere. So they both decide they're going to tell their boss, and he contacts the police. A week later, a grocer in town is driving home about four in the morning. 
he also sees a huge hairy creature crossing the road in front of him. He tells the police. Now the police have multiple sightings of this creature or person in a costume or whatever it is, and they open an investigation. A local newspaper gets a hold of the story, and suddenly, Defiance has werewolf fever. Now, I should point out that the town went bananas after that. Dozens of reports were submitted, claiming a werewolf-like creature was seen on their property, hiding in the bushes and peering inside of windows. Now, to learn more on that flap of sightings, I suggest watching the full video by CLE Weekend over on YouTube. That's flat, notoriously swampy ground through that area. The rest is just houses, highways, and corn. So I suppose you could say that anything could be out there. Thank you again, Emily, for sharing those terrifying tales. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All media used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And if you like what you hear, up on the internet and give us a rate and review wherever possible. And while you're at it, follow us on our social media pages. We have accounts at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you're surfing around over on YouTube, give me a like, give me a follow. Now finally, the music from tonight's episode was provided by Iron Cthulhu Apocalypse. Co.ag Music and Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Thank you so much for listening. And until next week. Tonight's secret entry comes to us from Roll in the state of Illinois. Hi, this is Drew in Chicago. I'm a former law enforcement officer, federal law enforcement officer, and uh, this story goes back to 1995 when I was working as an EMT in Chicago. When I was working, I used to pick up a uh, patient on a particular off 911 calls for just basic transports to doctor's appointments. Beautiful little girl, five-year-old, great family, looked, you know, the model citizens. It was shocking when I looked through the files of this young girl and saw that there were animals in the neighborhood that were being, um, um, I don't know how else to say this, but um, desecrated and things she was doing to children in the neighborhood were, uh, I, I, I just couldn't believe it because she was the nicest little girl I thought I'd ever seen in the back of the ambulance with me. So uh, after transporting her one day uh, after the drop-off, kind of after a few days lost thought of it. And then two weeks later, walking through the same hospital, Christ Hospital on 95th Street in Oakland, actually, <clears throat> seen her in the waiting room of the hospital one day. And I went in and I said, hey, do you remember me? And I, w- I was in uniforms and uh she medical technician she did recognize me and I sat down next to her and she was coloring in the coloring book and we started talking a little bit and all of a sudden she looked up at me and I saw the brow of her forehead and her face change into uh, I, I still can't even explain it to this day this 27 years later or whatever I I can't explain it to this day it's like a different something took over this girl and I saw what was in those notes what was going on what this girl was going what she was doing and a different voice came over in her and she started saying the most vile things I can even say it on this program what she said the I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, 
right now the hairs are going up on my arms right now talking about the story. It was, uh, I, I couldn't believe it was the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen anything like it before. And thank God her parents and the doctors happened to walk by and they saw I was in there with her and they came in right away and they just apologized. And I'm like, oh. yeah, I just, I, I still, I still haven't forgot it till this day. Like I said, it's over 27 years later and it's still in my head. Uh, I actually told the uh, Irish bartender this uh, two days ago while we were sitting there. I said, hey, I got a story for you. And I told her and she goes, that is the creepiest, scary story I've ever heard. And I cannot go downstairs now to get the lines for the Coronas later. Thanks. Anyway, hope you guys appreciate it. Uh, I've got some more if you want in the future, so take care. Thanks, Raul. Creepy stuff. I think you might have the makings of the next Blumhouse blockbuster on your hands. Very horror movie-esque. And I wonder whatever became of this young girl. Perhaps she's listening. If so, give us a call. Until she does call in. Thanks again, Roll, for sharing your story. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. Now hang around a bit longer for a jaunt into the beyond, where we explore part two of our discussion with our friend, collaborator, and podcast host, David Flora. Just jump on over to patreon.com forward slash monsters among us podcast and join that $5 level. I'll see you guys over there. Now for part two with our friend, David Flora.